welcome. I'm all decked out in my blue today as we have a very special Set the Month in Motion monthly podcast forum this morning with a blue gravity takeover. Set the Month in Motion podcast is produced in partnership with the City of Fremantle's Building Business Capacity Program. But today we're taking a deep dive into the blue economy and looking at how innovation within that sector really is making an impact here regionally. Blue Gravity, I'll talk a little more after the podcast on, but in summary, it's a unique local partnership formed to drive and support regional businesses involved in the blue or marine-based economies. It was initiated by 4Blue and is supported by the Department of Jobs, Tourism, Science and Innovation, the New Industries Fund, the City of Coburn, the City of Fremantle, Fremantle Chamber of Commerce and a variety of other program partners. We are so very grateful for their support in uh, sponsoring the podcast today and gathering such a unique panel for us to talk to. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Denisha Quinlan and I'm the CEO here at the Fremantle Chamber of Commerce. The Wajak people of the Noongar Nation have long had a standing connection to our coastline and our oceans. And today I would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners on the coast on which we gather and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This region has always been associated with marine based activity from the traditional custodians, as I mentioned, through to the creation of our port and our harbours. In recent time, our region has seen growth of some incredible new enterprises who are world leaders in harnessing the commercial, environmental, social opportunities presented by our oceans and this new economy. This podcast is going to explore the early adopters and champions of a growing sector of innovation. We are missing one of our panellists this morning due to the current COVID times, but Andrew from Full Blue does send his apologies and I'll um, read out a few words from Andrew at the, uh, at the end of our session this morning. When we think of the ocean, it's always been a powerhouse of energy and connection to something bigger than ourselves. And today we're going to explore three very different organisations who are creating something extraordinary from the sea and new energy. One of them is aiming to change the medical world with products sourced directly from our oceans. Another is creating a digital network and community around those who recreate in the sea. And the third, an organisation that is harnessing the sea's energy to power more equitably and in a more sustainable way across the globe. I'm really looking forward to hearing each one of our panellists' incredible stories. And today we're just really going to focus on the inspiration, the ability to think outside the square and how we turn amazing ideas into reality. So first up on my panel, immediately to my left, is Patrick Mower, CEO of Marine Biomedical. Patrick has 24 years marine biology experience as a scientific researcher and general manager in the marine aquaculture sector and is a director of two private companies. Patrick is a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and a consulting presenter for Sports Medicine Australia. He's also an active sports trainer and an advisor for state and local sporting groups and associations. Patrick has an extensive knowledge of the Australian marine sector and has advised on legislative direction and research programs right across the nation. As a long-term resident of Broome, um, we welcome Patrick down to our southern shores this morning. Patrick is suitably positioned to develop marine biomedical PTY LTD in regional Western Australia. And Patrick, what an amazing niche business you find yourself in. Can you talk us through, just to start, some of the motivations to start marine biomedical and what you see on the horizon for ocean-based industries in the medical sector? Thanks, Denisha, and um, thank you for the invite uh, to you, yourself and uh, to Andrew, CCI, Fremantle. Um, yeah, so 
So Marie Biomedical, I guess, was um, uh, founded between uh, myself and Professor Minghao Zhang, um, the uh, head of surgery at UWA. And um, Professor Zhang and I met in 2015 in, in Broome and um, he sort of came and had a look at our purling operation at the company I was working at at the time and was quite interested in buying his wife a pearl um, until he, I guess he saw the price <laughs> and then redirected his attention towards um, the byproduct of the industry, which is uh, the mother of pearl shell. That typically was used for uh, buttons in the early stage of the industry back in the um, 50s and 60s mm. um, and kind of became an obsolete um, component of the industry after the value of the cultured pearl became far more significant than the value of the mother of pearl. So typically um, we as a producer um, when I was in that role um, bagged up our, our mother of pearl in a rudimentary style of um, grading and typically shipped it overseas to China and it used to get processed for a range of different things like uh, marine paints and um, ornamentals. And uh, Professor Zhang started to have a look at it um, as a biomineralizing bio-mineral- mollusk, which is other than humans, it's really the only other biomineralizing, um, other than animals and humans, uh, biomineralizing or, um, animal in the in the world. And started to think about whether it's had a compatibility with bone substitutes for trauma medicine, which typically have either used uh, demineralized bone um, or synthesized calcium carbonate. So being a natural product, we kind of had a little little look into that and tried to understand, um, I'm quite familiar with the biomineralization process and with Professor Zhang's knowledge about human biomineralization for bone repair we started to establish there might be some synergies in regards to the use of the product, which typically kind of was a low-value byproduct. And um, so go forward, I guess, after about six years, they um, conducted some in vivo trial research, um, an an injectable bone substitute against a product that has been um, typically approved in, Mm. in the orthopedic space. And we actually identified using a range of different analytical techniques, biocompatibility techniques, that the um, the mother of pearl shell or the aragonite crystals that come from um, the the ground up pearl shell had a very good um, biocompatibility trait with human bone. And so, after the in vivo trial where we mimicked a bone trauma, we identified that the um, conversion to new bone um, happened quite quickly and more uniform on our product, which is we've we've trademarked as the word pearl bone, um, faster than than what I guess a typical hydroxyapatite calcium carbonate product um, has done before. So that gave us kind of the inspiration to start the business. Wow. <laughs> my brain is pinging with so many different thoughts there from one, how does one just go into um, <laughs> to buy a pearl and come out with a life-changing, world-changing technology, quite an extraordinary leap. And the second thing is, I guess, just 
that amazingness of the beauty of the pearl and um, even the shells and doing something so incredible for human beings. That is another job that I think is just amazing. And I'd love to probably spend most of the panel just talking to you about that. But, um, Share it. Share yeah. the love. <laughs> That's it. Such an interesting story in just taking a spark of an idea. Obviously, with your incredible sports background, the technology um, that Dr Wing brings to the story, but a big picture idea with so much risk involved. Can you talk us through a little bit about how you've gathered momentum to, to manage those risks to get to there? Yeah, um, absolutely. You're, you're right. When you when you sit a bit, think about we have a, uh, sorry, the two inventors, Professor Minghao Zhang and Dr. Chris Ruan, both from the University of Western Australia, they're, typically their idea is to establish the scientific um, benefits of a product and then look to commercialise it, which is typically what universities like to do when they hold the patents. And luckily I've been able to um, get a very good board, um, a very good, um, uh, I guess, medical team. So Dr. Ruan is working directly as an orthopaedic surgeon is working directly in the company now. So um, I guess my, my biggest challenge back in, I guess, early 2020 was to understand the regulatory pathway, mm. which is a minefield. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and particularly we're looking at um, FDA approval in the US first for a um, class two medical device. And there's a number of different pathways that are promoted um, um, by the FDA and they are brand new products or a, a pathway that we've elected, which is called the 510K pathway, which is... Um, where you replicate a device that has already been approved and you prove substantial equivalence. Okay. And our aim is to prove substantial equivalence. So we established that that pathway was achievable. And once we identified that pathway, then it was to undertake some market research to understand the type of market we would want to get into, um, the ceilings, um, and then also the barriers. And mm -hmm. um, it's... It's forecast to go to about a $4.6 billion industry in 2027, the um, bone substitute industry in the world, and about $2.2 billion of that is through the US. And we've kind of thought, okay, what, what piece of the pie do we want and who are we up against? Mm. And we're up against people like Medtronic and um, Zimmer Biomet, and you're talking companies that have market caps in excess of a couple of billion dollars. And what do they think about our product going forward? So we've kind of taken the bespoke um, pathway and the Me Too concept. So how many people care about what might be injected into their body? There is a significant yeah, amount. Absolutely. And then what is what is the story behind Pearlbone? And I guess the story behind Pearlbone really looks at um, the link to regional Western Australia a, a marine um, certified industry, so MSC certified sustainable fishery, um, the last um, uh, wild um, pearling grounds in the world, the 80 mile beach um, off off the West uh, Kimberley coast and the Pilbara region and um, all natural products. So effectively we're looking at how NACAR, which has been doing what it's been doing for so long for mollus, 200 million years, um, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So we've looked at how the pearl oyster repairs 
um, intruders and, and, and has the ability to stimulate nacre deposition. And how is that compatible with bone? So we, we're kind of not looking to compete with them, but we're looking to target people that generally have an interest in um, sustainability in the products that we're using. It's so. amazing. We um, had a podcast still. Gosh, it must have been about six months ago on commercialising ideas. And it's really interesting as you're telling your story, you know, so many of those themes um, that they brought up and particularly one of the product examples was around a pharmaceutical product, getting it to market. Mm. But that involvement of understanding the regulatory environment in which you're operating and the timelines often involved in that, but getting those key stakeholders on board early, most importantly, understanding what problem that you're actually trying to solve. And I think there's a really good story around that and the sustainability and then understanding your market and your brand. And I think, you know, if we look at all of those in a nutshell, what an amazing case study. Mm. Um, and we'll come back to some of those things. But Patrick, I'm conscious we're going to get down the panel a little bit. Um, we welcome back, speaking of podcasts, Luke Jackson um, with a very different hat on um, today. Luke was involved in one of our very first podcasts, I think. You're up number one or number two um, back in the day. I can't believe we're 33 down, Luke. But anyway, um, Luke is a long-standing member of the Chamber and has had an extensive career in executive positions in equity, finance and acquisitions with um, a number of the leading banks, Commonwealth Bank, National Bank and the Bank of Scotland International. A big jump into a, a new sector. Luke has recently established a capital raising company called Zaya Capital and Finance to assist clients with arranging, negotiating and executing finance requirements with domestic and international capital providers. In addition, um, a true passion project, I think Luke has taken on the position of general manager of a marine tech startup called Nebo that is a leading app bringing together the recreational boating community. Luke, as we've just discussed, you've spent most of your career in banking and finance and equity. What role do you see for innovation in building communities like Nebo that are aiming to do, I guess, in the recreational and boating sphere, a number of things, but also commercialising something that is, you know, again, sort of relatively passion project. I'd be really interested in how you see the future of equity in finance, not only in your helping grow your own organisation, which you'll have to tell us a little bit about, but yeah, how you see that impacting in businesses like we're talking about today. Yeah, thanks, Tanisha. Big question there. Yeah, um, it is. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, so Nebo is, is um, as pointed out, it's, it's about bringing boating communities together and, and, and people being able to share um, something that they love to doing out doing out on the water with their family and friends. So it, I think I think it's all sort of come about and the founder Stephen Winter is a, a geospatial engineer or a technician. So he's had a love for things around geospatial. Um, but if you look look at the technology that's really enabled Nebo to do what it's what it's done, it's around the GPS tracker. And that sort of created an explosion of, of technologies across many industries. But mm. for marine, for what we're trying to do, um, we have a we have uh, an, an app an app which you can download on your phone, and a GPS device which you put on your boat, and that enables you to share your captain's log, if you like, of your your boating journey with, with your friends and your family. Um, you can put things like photos and great fishing spots if you wish to tell people where, <laughs> where you're your, your, your best spot is um, uh, or if you've seen, you know, dolphins on a trip over to Rottnest or something like that, you can throw a pin in the water. And it's really about um, sharing that journey that you have out in the water, all the things that you love to do on the water with family, friends or a community of boaters. Mm. 
So we've had great, great success with the technology already. We've got 50,000 users, most of those in the US. And is that a a lot of sea changes as well? You know, people that are heading off on on trips away for the first time and those sorts of things Yeah, absolutely. So using the US as an example, we have a, a group over there called the American Great Loopers Association and they... Uh, do the seven great lakes of the US and they have adopted Nebo as their sort of go-to community app Uh, and they're all on it and they share with each other their journey so it might be something like if you're you're doing a a new segment of the of the loop um, you can reach out via the app and ask you know how did you do this section where did you go could you share your log with me you know what restaurant did you go to what cafe did you go to that that sort of thing so you really being almost like a local, the, the technology is enabling you to be a local in that new harbour that you've just yeah. you've just gone into. Yeah, what pen works, what doesn't, yeah, all of those Yeah, things. exactly. Yeah, that's amazing. And I imagine amazing community and, and the demand's obviously there, but financing an idea like that, making it commercial, how does that work, right? Uh, that's, a, <laughs> that's a challenge. Um, you know, we, we're, we're lucky enough that... Um, we have uh, 50,000 registered users yeah. and, and of that. So that's a pay a fee for service almost? That's, that's free, okay. free, free users, um, but that's you know, active, active boat users. Where, where, we, where we charge is we provide the, the, the GPS device yeah. okay. um, and then people will pay a subscription service for that. So we've managed to get about seven or 800 users on that today. We've only launched yeah. that product recently. So we've got a revenue stream, yeah. Um, but financing in the traditional sense is is um, very difficult mm. when you're at that really early stage. And so we uh, we have embarked on an, an equity raising process where we are looking for uh, equity to help us get to the next phase. Mm. One of the things we talked about when you were on the podcast previously around just raising capital in new markets is often, you know, for an established business, you've got collateral within the business, you've got assets, you've got, you know, personal assets. How do established institutions go around evaluating, I guess, you know, blue gravity type businesses, Mm. the startups and the innovators from your perspective? It's very tough to Mm. put value on a company that is in an early stage. I think what, and you sort of mentioned this, it's about identifying that problem that you're looking to solve and you know with Patrick's business fantastic problem there yeah you're like how do I get some money in there absolutely Um, (laughs) and with us you know similar we really you know we have to really be honed in on what the problem is that we're solving so for Mm -hmm. recreational boaters it's about sharing your journey yeah keeping your family and friends um informed while you're out in the middle of the deep blue sea there's a safety aspect to it around you know I can send I can give a link to my, my family and friends and they can see where I am if I disappear off the map yeah. as a location. Um, and, and, and we also do a lot of work with charter businesses as well and boat hire companies that want to know where their boats are when they give them to people like me who might go out and <laughs> zip off to wherever. Uh, they want to know where they are. That's a really and yeah. through the technology as well, we can, we can put these um, geofences around and it will inform the the, the charter owner when the boat goes outside of where it's supposed to be. Um, so that, you know, there's some, the, identifying those problems yeah. and then clearly articulating what your solution is, that's what's going to make somebody with the cold hard cash come in and say, yeah, I understand what you're doing. 
Yeah. And I can see the market there and see the market and see that commercial pathway yeah, into that market. Yeah. So that that's been quite clear for us to be very um, succinct on what what we're solving. Yeah. And um, and also what the market is that that we're we're addressing. We've 37 million boaters, recreational boaters in the, across the globe. Um, there's going to be a few people that are going to want to do what we what we offer. It's a really interesting story and I'd like to come back to it too in terms of one of the things about the blue economy and marine economy is we often forget just how many recreational boaters there are out there as well and I think when we're looking at the harbour connections for Fremantle and we're planning around marine infrastructure, that huge component of our population often does get missed out. So there's another really interesting path. Again, I think I could, we could probably have a podcast on each one of your businesses alone so far. And our next panellist, Rebecca, another amazing individual um, who has taken a, a massive risk to, to make a true difference um, for our planet and our communities. Um, Rebecca Manley is co-founder and geoscientist at One Tide Modular Systems, a clean energy company focused on bringing energy into the hands of those who need it most. Um, Rebecca's career commenced in the energy sector itself uh, with the Energy Corporation of New Zealand and you've had a lifetime interest in renewable energy, particularly hybrid energy and supply, wind, geothermal and gas turbine. Um, Rebecca has spent time in upstream oil and gas and um, firmly believes that oil is a commodity for manufacturing, not energy production. And having spent many years in oil and gas myself, Rebecca, I can really um, understand how you get to that point and what an exciting journey you've taken from that traditional, I guess, energy company into where you are now. How did you find a place um, where you found a way to harness energy in such a compact and low impact model? I mean, it's extraordinary. I love the picture um, of the just the pack with the um, parachute coming down uh, into communities that need it most. Um, an amazingly unique product in a in a market that I can imagine, like the rest of what we've heard today, must only be growing in our world. Can you talk us through a bit of that journey and how you came to uh, harness the energy, so to speak? Yep, sure. Thanks very much and thanks for the invitation to be here. Um, I guess the journey began, um, as you said, I'm, I'm a geoscientist by background and I've worked in energy for the, the majority of my career and environmental science and hydrogeology. Um, and in 2014, myself and my co-founder were um, firmly entrenched in the oil industry and there was a big, you know, we see cyclically rise and fall of oil price and there was a big price drop. And I think it was at that point, um, the penny drop for us that the, you know, the, the energy provision model was going to change in the future. And so in 2015, we set about um, developing the mobile microgrid, which is a hybrid renewable energy microgrid, very small form factor, less than a cubic meter size, um, and only 70 kilograms. So, you know, two person portable very easily. And the concept initially um, came from, because I, I guess our background collectively um, being an operational oil and gas, we, we kind of had already developed products in the marine logistics sector. And the mobile microgrid was a control system for a no-world sea fastening system. And so it wasn't too big a quantum leap to move that control system to controlling hybrid renewable energy inputs and then essentially modularizing it to put into a box. And then um, we uh, developed that and um, 
then the journey began to try and make people understand what it did and what its purpose was. And it wasn't really until, um, I guess, one of the benefits, if you can say that, of the COVID situation is that with the world slowing in 2019, you know, the, the potential of the earth to heal itself was evident and the true movement to the energy transition began. And from there, we've found ourselves in the fortunate position that everyone else is informing the market for us. Whereas previously, we were in a position where we would go to trade shows and you know people would walk past us sideways. And think, really <laughs> What's in the box? Yeah. You mad? <laughs> Just burn diesel. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, that, a, a bit like Patrick was saying, you know, you have to find your niche because now, you know, there are many um, products that are standalone power systems, et cetera, but most of them are static mm. and essentially they're really um, a household system in a sea container. That's not what the mobile microgrid is. It's, it's an entirely different concept. So quite a journey today. Mm, absolutely. And capital and production <coughs> must have been a massive part of that journey as well and bringing it to market. How did you go about that process? Well, no sleep and running on the smell <laughs> of an oily rag, basically. And, you know, like I said, there's only myself and my co-founder in the business. And so we, we really um, ran One Tide in parallel to our day jobs from 2015 until sort of late 2020 when we gained our first significant contract. And, you know, because it's very hard. There's the push and the pull, isn't there? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, how do you, how do you release the tether of a secure paying job to move across? But the requirement was there because you needed the time input mm -hmm. into the company at that point. You know, and that that has been, you know, a, a roller coaster and, and, and remains to be, you know. And even just dividing your headspace between, you know, something that you've put all that passion and energy to and then, you know, going to your normal day job knowing that at some point in time that shift is going to happen, I imagine, would be really, really challenging. And just on that, and I'll move back through the panel as we go, Rebecca, but in terms of your sort of definition of success, have you mapped out where you want to go or are you kind of just growing the business incrementally as it comes? Um, yeah, I guess we kind of have mapped out. I, you know, I, I, I think, um, you know, what success would look like for me would be that, you know, it requires a paradigm shift. So it requires people to think differently and not to think, okay, well, look, can you be competitive with a diesel generator? Well, it depends what you're talking about. Are you talking about um, comparing the operating cost of a diesel generator to the initial capital cost of the microgrid? Well, if you're going to look at that, well, in the short term, no, you can't. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking at line of sight to free energy one to two years away, absolutely you can. And, and if you're considering... Um, uh, you know, your overall greenhouse gas footprint as, as an enterprise, yeah, you know, it's a 97% reduction in carbon footprint for, uh, you know, most operations. So um, success to me would be that, um, you know, I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a dreamer, so I, 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 what I would like to see is that particularly for disaster relief applications where you could actually leave that infrastructure in remote communities such as Pacific Island communities mm -hmm. where um, you then release the umbilical of having to supply 
diesel to those communities and the greenhouse gas footprint of that whole logistics chain is removed. So success to me is implementation of the microgrid to essentially reduce not just carbon but the greenhouse gas footprint mm -hmm. of remote energy operations. And, you know, what I haven't mentioned is that we can integrate low draw water purification and atmospheric water generation. So for Amazing. disaster relief, the, yeah. you know, the applications are enormous. Because you and get it, the energy and the clean water, which are the yeah. two biggest yeah. things to recover. Yeah, and, you know, I've spent a lot of my career in Africa and it would be it would be life-changing for communities in Africa to not spend their entire day worrying about how they're going to get potable water, how are they going to have energy to do everything that they need to do. It's a long answer, sorry. No, it's perfect. And, and to, there's two, another question I want to come back to about being a dreamer because I think in addition to knowing what success looks like, you have to be willing to dream a little bit to make these amazing businesses happen. Um, and only because it's easier just to pass the mic today, I think, down the... Luke, your definition of success. I mean, you're fairly new into the business. Where do you want to go? What, have you got it mapped out? We do. Um, I think, you know, we... we, we we often forget being in Perth that we do have a global market and we kind of think, oh, you know, when we sort of first caught up around our what's our definition of success, we always sort of said, oh, we'll get the sailing club and we'll get this, you know, down the road. But then we had to stop and think, no, we've got a global market. We've, we've got global reach. What is success? And mm -hmm. so, yeah, we, we've, we want to be the leader in in creating global boating communities. That's that's our goal. Um, and we want to support groups like I talked about the American Great Loopers where it's almost a community within a community, so yeah. boating community, little community inside Giving there the tools to keep that cohesion together. Yeah, keep together. that all going. Yeah. So if we can if we can conquer the globe and, um, and you know, provide uh, boating communities with a, a technology to connect and really enhance their boating journey, then we've, we've done our job. It's amazing. It's making me wonder what I'm doing sitting around with my time talking to the three of you. Can I just tell you? <laughs> You're all changing the world and we're sitting here having a conversation. <laughs> I'm doing a bit more. But, yes, Patrick, your definition of success. We've <clears throat> I've, I've sort of thought about this quite a lot in the first 12 months leading up to it. I think like Rebecca said, I, I was actually devoted 100% to the business Without it, without a revenue or income stream, um, and it was all on selling the story and finding the right in private equity investors, um, building the board that kind of had the vision that we had, um, and and some expertise that they were going to bring. I I have an intrinsic value and I um, that I've placed on the business, and I guess I've had a we have a commercial or performance value. Um, our intrinsic value or our intrinsic um, success milestone is to bring to regional Australia, regional Western Australia in particular, um, innovation and expertise into an into a an, an area that typically bases its whole um, financial models on um, local government and retail tourism. And a, I guess, an oil and gas hub, if you like, in terms of just transport point. Yeah. You see what COVID does to um, issues around tourism. You see what 
Rebecca spoke about, about um, oil markets, gas markets, all those things that are kind of ebbing and flowing. Um, and for us, we looked at the industry. We looked at how important um, the town was founded on pearling and the, there was 16 companies there 10 years ago and there's now kind of three or four um, and they've invested in other parts, um, Northern Territory and, and those sorts of things. So the town's revenue diminished significantly from pearling and all the employees. So we want to we want to say, hey, um, to the government, um, to the local community, to the Indigenous community that and the Malay community that were important, um, we understand how important this was to you 15, 20, 30 years ago. Um, we're going to reinvigorate that importance, but we're doing it differently. So we want buy-in from our community that thanks for taking the risk with us um, and, and keep us posted, let us be part of it, hopefully fantastic employment opportunities. So that's our first kind of, you know, um, that – um, me too success. Mm. Then there's the financial. So the financial and performance is looking at the industry itself and understanding is there another opportunity in where we take a byproduct of an industry and and a devalued or undervalued byproduct and convert it to a medical product or a pharmaceutical or cosmetic because that for us is where we think we're going to have success. Yeah. People have approached us now and said, can you do something with this? Yeah. And um, for us, that's gaining traction. And I think regulatory approval um, for us is going to indicate that we are a serious mm. business. And there's so many different components to that. And as you were talking, funnily enough, we've got a picture of the port just above our head. And I, we're pushing really hard at the moment with the future Fremantle Committee to say that, you know, tourism and retail and hospitality, which are the, often the beacons of this community, we forget that the port is the backdrop. It is the brand that brings all of those things together. And unless we protect and nurture marine industries and other industries like your own that are big heart, that big risk, we, you know, run a risk of becoming in a very similar situation to Broome. So I think it's a really good example. And I think the other thing that struck me as all of you were talking is you can't go into these innovative, challenging, difficult businesses without that heart and that aspiration because if you go in for purely commercial reasons initially, it's just you're not going to have the, the perseverance and the push to keep going. Rebecca, you've obviously been pushing for a, a long time. How do you on a personal level take that dream and that heart with all that knockbacks and just keep coming and pushing through those obstacles that you find? Fortitude and resilience, <laughs> and a, you know, and a, a, a you know, a get up and just keep on going attitude. Mm. Because yeah, the, the knock the knockbacks come far more regularly than the progression, mm. and it, you know, it, it's certainly um, been an incredibly challenging journey. But you know, I'm enjoying it. Yeah. And so, you know, I've, I've, I've worked in um, multinational corporates for most of my career and, you know, while, whilst that was fun, you know, it's time to move on to something. It's time to move on to something, you know, I, I had I had an a epiphany in my uh, sort of mid-20s where I thought, what am I doing mm. in oil and gas? You know, why, you know, this is, this is because I've worked in hydrogeology and environmental science up until that point and... Um, you know, and so basically at $14 oil, I packed up, 
spent six months backpacking around Africa. You don't get that opportunity anymore, you know, past a certain point in your career. You don't get that opportunity to just stop and think and reevaluate. Mm. And I think this is what going 100% into your own business and a business that you've got a passion about has done. It's made you evaluate, well, what do you actually want to do with your life and do you do you want to try and and make change and make a difference and that's you know with that passion to get up and be driven every day by that desire then that's you know that's what keeps you forging through all the knockbacks absolutely and i i think you know we often um particularly in covid times where things are really difficult for business there's a lot of commentary around you know what's in it for me government support how do i get things for my business to keep me alive and keep me going. And I think each one of your stories is just so extraordinary in the I'm going to not only make a difference in my own business and world, but I'm kind of going to change the world at the same time. And I think that theme of business through group gravity is, is just so incredibly um, amazing. And I guess on that, the there's such a big sort of, I guess, personal financial risk as well as risking growth in a business you've got to attract talent into your business to keep it growing we've talked about marketing we've talked about capital the people side of it I mean you've got an established business Patrick it might be worth starting there but then also working down about how we create and build businesses around people as well to to bring your dream alive I guess is where I'm kind of getting to in a very long-winded way this morning, Patrick. No, you, you, it couldn't be um, any more correct. Um, we, our challenge is attracting expertise, um, quality control expertise in, you know, um, the biomedical space to Broome. I mean, the, the Kimberley and Broome, they speak for themselves. You know, you can't – you couldn't put a sales pitch. You just log on to um, Tourism um, WA or uh, Broome and the Kimberley. Yeah, we want to knock some of those photos off. If we you put can, some photos of free up there, that'd yeah, be much yeah. better for us. Thanks, Patrick. You can, <laughs> you can see it. You don't need to say, oh, you know, it's really uh, – what you do have to say is uh, a little bit isolated. Um, it's not anything like the city anymore. It is a regional town. It's hot. It's humid. Um, can be dusty in the in the dry season when the easterlies blow, um, but but if you actually want to um, understand the origin of where our raw product come from and our raw products um, will come from, um, it's great to be right on the doorstep of it. So, so you're almost living the brand exactly. Yeah. So um, my background in in working in in the pearling industry for eighteen years. Um, that's my passion to say, hang on, we can do a little bit more. The pearl is fantastic. It's, I, I've been a pearl technician also for that period of time, so I learned to seed from Japanese and, and have seeded oysters for that many uh, for that long and harvested, and it's really fitting mm. and really um, rewarding. But will you be able to find talent up. like that with the passion that you've got for the industry? Do you think moving forward? Um, that is going to be a challenge. Mm. Um, if we move to full manufacturing, and that could be, that's probably five to seven years' time, then we would need to build a big facility up there. And, you know, there's evidence suggests that we probably need to be down here. And so we lose that regional um, exclusivity, if you like. Um, so I think what we have to do is build 
a profile of the business that becomes attractive to people that have had enough time being in the city. And that means diversifying our product range. So uh, Pearlbone, which is our premier product, we've already developed a upscale of that product um, via a internship that we've offered to a graduate from um, uh, Harry Perkins Institute. And he's been fantastic to understand, hey, I've now stepped out of research, stepped into commercial. Well, I've got to think a little bit differently. So he's expressed an interest um, in the future to maybe come to us. So I think if we can build the profile, I think that's how, how we'll attract it. both of you? I guess, you know, working in a really close team in an innovation sector and having to grow it from there. Any thoughts, Roy? Yeah, I think, um, look, we, we're a team of two locally, so not a big team. We do have people that we, we lean on in other countries to, to help us. Um, but finding finding people locally to, to help us grow has been difficult I think fight you've got to have the passion um because it's probably not going to pay that well yeah <laughs> um and you know um and and perseverance because it's going to be a long road and so finding that those people that are you know willing to jump on board with where we're at is probably uh, it's, it's quite a it's quite a difficult thing and having their passion line up with your passion because that can sometimes be the challenge as well can't it yep. absolutely Rebecca any thoughts on on growth and and people and where you go from here yep. so um <clears throat> we're um we're also a team of two a core team of two but we work on a different model and that um I could I can I could bore your senses about why um, I firmly believe sovereign capability is incredibly important mm-hmm. and, and local capability as well, but I won't at the moment. Um, Go on. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, stems back we to might do another conversation on that, um, yes. But, um, yeah, uh, so the model that we um, use is, uh, and, and that's what enables us to um, tolerate some of the risk in the business mm-hmm. as well, is that by utilising other local SMEs, it means that we build their business, build their capability, but we're not burdened with the overheads mm, of, employees of employees because, you know, as, as um, we were just saying, yeah. you know, you can't pay that well because sometimes mm. you don't even pay yourself. Yeah, so, yeah. in fact, the majority of the time you don't pay yourself. Mm. So um, you can't really appeal to a talent pool very easily so by paying for service if you like and whether that is um, services in terms of consultancy we might need other engineers Mm. such as structural engineers which aren't our core expertise you know we we will pay for their consultancy services or for fabrication we will do the same in in that sense and you know that shares the love It, it grows other businesses in the community it keeps it local which keeps your product miles low and um, allows us to be agile as a company. And it's really interesting because I think a lot of people often fear that sort of more outsourcing style of model, but I imagine it also enables you to pick the best when you need it and not have them yep. in all the time as well. You've absolutely hit the nail on the head. We were talking to a client a while ago and they, they were a little concerned that we didn't have in-house expertise in structural engineering. The structural engineers that we use, we've got a relationship that go back two decades mm. because of our former careers. So, you know, if, if you engage with your suppliers, you treat them well, you pay them on time, you pay them fairly, 
you know, to me that's far more resilient than having someone in-house that you can't afford the best but you can pay for the best occasionally. Yeah, exactly. And they're working on other projects and bring that knowledge and expertise in there. I think it's a really interesting <coughs> concept because I think we do often think about just growing our businesses you know, inside our businesses rather than looking to the market outside. I'm just going to briefly look over to our panel audience and just check if there are any questions coming through online, Chels. Lee, did you have any questions you wanted to ask the panel? Yeah, and just pass the... Yeah, thanks, guys. Um, really great hearing uh, around all the, I suppose, the innovation that's going on in the room. It's, um, it's really impressive. Uh, and I suppose around that, that innovation piece and on the startup, you talk around the, I suppose, the struggles to get the idea off the ground. What do we need to be doing more as a, as a country, as a community, uh, to really help these things get off the ground? Um, so it's not just a case of your own blood, sweat, and tears that goes into it. But how how can we, um, how can we help foster those ideas to actually make sure that they, they get through to the the you know the growth stages? It's a great question, Lee. Thank you. Does anyone want to take that one to start? Thanks. Becca? Um, I think that's really a, a very difficult challenge because you see um, quite often you fall between the not advanced enough to advanced and so you, you never ever fall in the right space for any form of assistance and also often that assistance comes in matched funding. So, you know, there, there, are, there are grants available but you know, if you're not paying yourself, how are you going to find $100,000 to match the funds? Yeah. Uh, but I also appreciate from you know, the, the funders, the, the, the government perspective, you know, they have to tread very carefully because without, without an enterprise, <clears throat> excuse me, having skin in the game to demonstrate their commitment, and that's, I guess that's where the match funding comes in, but I think there actually needs to be a little bit more granularity on what that match funding looks like. So, for example, you know, if you've committed your funds to develop, uh, you know, an MVP, a minimum viable product, and you can demonstrate that you've done that, then why can't that support the match funding? Why must you, you know, so I, th mm. I think there needs to be a bit of lateral thought because obviously to get to the position we are in our businesses, you've already committed a lot so there's not a lot left in the tank to commit so I, I think that would be very helpful yeah. particularly if you don't want to look at the investor pathway you know what we've done to date has been entirely self-funded and that you know that is a lot of blood sweat and tears so absolutely that's, that's all and in terms of oh sorry I let you go no no look you go you go, go and answer Lee's question and then I'll hold my breath and wait for mine to come up I was just gonna say I, I think the match funding idea is terrible um We'll, we've looked at it a few times and it's it's very difficult and the application process is very, very difficult mm. to, um, to get through. Uh, I, I think that when I look at the market for capital in Australia, it, it's certainly become a lot deeper than it was five, ten years ago. Mm. There's a lot more venture capital around. Um, I think for Perth specifically, we're, we're, we're very isolated here and mm. it would be fantastic if there was more um, venture type capital available here um, uh, that could you know could come out look touch feel see what you were doing and and really get involved in uh, in the businesses locally here mm. 
Um, but it's a good Particularly sign. in the sector, I guess, that we're talking about today, because I imagine that both locally but also internationally, there's a lot of people that have a really strong commitment to trying to make a difference in the world. And I think at the Blue Economy Investment Forum, we talked a bit about, you know, those investors that want to make a difference, that it's that matching of that, their passion with those finances as well to build that community of financial support that doesn't just rely on government grants and funding mm. as well. Um, Patrick, did you have anything you wanted to add just on what you would see in terms of needs of support? I'm, I'm interested in the regulatory environment point that you raised as well. Yeah, so so I've engaged a in-house patent attorney uh, because we have a number of patents in five international jurisdictions Yeah. Um, and you can't um, drop the ball on those. You've got to keep your eye on those and it's quite a complex. I, I have a brief, a, a sort of a... Um, low-key understanding of it but I rely on him he's very good and he um, is going to be extremely important to the business have a regulatory consultant and I have a clean room consultant now and these guys are I are fantastic um, we've come to a good agreement about um, what our costs are going to be but they're also extremely critical for us to deliver it I do have to recognize um, the grant um, the minister um, McTiernan and, and Deepard because um, Marine Biomedical was successful and it was announced yesterday in Broome um, of winning a grant um, with uh, with the REDS grant, um, okay. Regional Economic Development Grant. Um, and, and the minister loved our project and she said it's, it's really promising to see someone that's just stepping out of their comfort zone and going into regional and taking a biomedical um, and all the challenges we talked about, you'll, I'll take those with us. And she, she understood that, but she's been quite supportive. Um, and I also have an application currently with um, um, Developing Northern Australia, the NADP grant, I think it is. And that is kind of stalling because of um, the announcements of who's, uh, of elections and yeah. caretaker modes and stuff. So your business stalls when the decision-making stalls. But the the reference to developing Northern Australia means you need to go forward and when you want to push the button, there is that delay about whether you meet all the selection criteria. Um, you get four weeks to write a grant and you have six months before they announce it and you kind of go, how do you develop yeah. going forward when um, the reins have been pulled back on your business yeah. and you go, you can't, um, you can't preemptively purchase or there's no retrospective claiming of, of your um, expenses. So... The business does halt because, yeah. because of that stall process. And even in the regulatory environment, we've been having a bit of argy-bargy with TGA around um, export certification at the moment and it takes them two weeks to let us know whether, if at all, whether a product is even listed on the TGA. I can't even imagine the process to actually getting something listed and those sorts of things. Um, the regulatory environment for you, Rebecca, is that something that is a challenge? particularly in energy, Excuse me. Yes, it is. It's it's very onerous and it's um, almost to the point of being off-putting through, you know, looking to provide service through, um, uh, I, I guess, providers like our energy provision because mm. the hurdles are so almost so great that it's um, it, it's, it's too much of a challenge to, to, to try and address. But... <clears throat> the um, the regulatory framework is constantly evolving because mm. I think there's a recognition that um, the uh, energy provision model NWA um, it, you know it's, it's kind of reached its uh, 
plateau in terms of the infrastructure. It does need to be replaced. And so, you know, we've seen with all the pole top fires and things that, you know, that's not an ideal model and mm. the, the cost to replace that infrastructure will be almost prohibitive in comparison to creating satellite um, uh, standalone um, microgrid power mm. system. So that is an evolving landscape. And I guess, you know, the question from the audience, I, I, you know, I, I was thinking more along the grant pathways, but if I can just revert back to that, where we've been very successful is finding an aligned, an, an alliance company. Mm. And I, I just wanted to mention that because um, through our, our, our um, some of the provision of our products to the defence industry, um, I think that's how it can help. I was thinking more you were talking about along the government lines. Mm. I, I do think the government needs to think about fostering. Um, and I, I know there's a lot of support in the regional space for that. Um, but looking towards finding an, an, an alliance company, I think, is really, really important. Um, some Someone that has the desire to help small business solve problems and, you know, create a, a symbiosis, if you like, between mm. the entities. Absolutely. And I think, you know, <coughs> that question that, that Lee raised um, so rightly, it is, it's all of the things we've talked about today, isn't it? It's finding that support to enable that initial idea to get traction in the first place. The government funding is a massive part of that process. The community and the network of stakeholders and experts that you build around you, as well as, as you've highlighted those, you know, initial alliance companies and those first, I guess, people who are willing to take your product and take it to market and nurturing those is so, so important. As I said, I feel like we could talk on this particular topic all day. It has been such an incredible um, toe in the water into your individual stories. And I think we might get you all back on a panel in a little while to keep going. But um, just as we kind of wind up the conversation, if you were to give a couple of words of advice to someone that was embarking on a journey to, to bring an idea, whether it be in the blue economy or others to fruition, what advice would you give them? Get your war chest ready. Make sure it's full and, <laughs> and guard it closely. And that's on financial and personal and health yes. and everything, isn't it, Rebecca? Yep. Yeah. And, and I, I think piece of advice would be demonstrate your capabilities. So yeah. you've got to, you've got to invest. You don't just build a glossy website and say, we can do this. Show you can do it. Yeah. And then once you've shown you can do it, then, and you know, and that, that, sh that shows your commitment. It shows that okay. you are intimately involved and, and, and want want it to succeed. And then And that's not just some random idea you've had yeah. one night while driving in your car. You know, the robustness of even the science that all of your stories have is so strong. You've got to commit. Yeah. And yeah. show your commitment. Yeah. It's fantastic. Thank you. Luke? Um yeah, I'd say uh, plan well. Um make sure that you develop to your customer customer-led development, um, that goes to the point of just developing mm. what you want for yourself but what your customers are actually asking for. Um, and be clear on on your, your mission. Yeah. I think three things. Are and stick to that because I imagine there's so many different pathways or opportunities that come up along the line. Keeping your eye on the prize must be quite hard. Absolutely. <laughs> and not spreading yourself too thin. Yeah, that's great advice, Luke. Thank you. Patrick? Uh, similar to Luke, map, map your pathway, 
um, but stay agile. Yeah. And um, your focus, as you mentioned, maintain your focus. Um, we we have a plethora of opportunities that are floating around our headspace at the moment. Um, our core focus is regulatory approval for Pearlbone, but um, we're trying to build opportunities in other um, variations of medical products or opportunities. And um, we want to build a portfolio of IP, but we need to, yeah, maintain that um, pathway um, that we're taking now. Fantastic. Some really, really great advice there across the board, I think, for, for all of us in business. Um, I'm just going to wind up this morning with our, a, a few words from Andrew, given he uh, wasn't able to be with us, um, just on what Blue Gravity is. And that links in a bit to Lee's question about, you know, how we can try to build a community that supports initiatives like yours. Um, and Andrew writes, 100 years ago, Western Australia was a radically different society and economy. Even in the last 20 years, significant shifts have happened. The future will be different again. Some of those changes are unpredictable, like war, politics and pandemics. Some aspects are already inevitable, like regenerating the natural environment and transitioning away from carbon-emitting energy. But much of the future is open to being deliberately imagined, envisaged, planned for and created. Uh, Blue Gravity as a, a program is for those that are creating something different, deliberately with the intention that it changes the trajectory of their company, industry or our society. Whether it's a new widget, energy technology, product, place or culture, this program is for those innovators. Uh, Blue Gravity has brought together a dozen partners who are all aligned in supporting innovators, its foundations in Fremantle's history, culture and geography, but our view is internationally. This vision and program is led by 4Blue and backed by the Department of Jobs, Tourism, Science and Innovation, the City of Coburn, the City of Fremantle and the Fremantle Chamber of Commerce. If you're working on something, the first step is to submit an expression of interest at the bluegravity.io website. Um, have a call uh, with the Blue Gravity team and see how they can help leverage to help you. The services include training, commercialisation, advice, funding, investment, office space, impact assessment, market analysis, everything that was spoken of today um, and that you need to grow your innovation and create a different future for your company, your industry, Western Australia our ocean, and I'm going to add in, and for our Fremantle region as well. Thank you all very, very much, Chris. Thank you again for getting us live and, and doing an amazing job. To those listening out there, I hope you're enjoying the uh, coffee and staying away from uh, the crazy COVID times we're in. And to those of you that have made it into the room today, thank you so much for being here. Um, we will now enjoy a croissant and a chocolate. That is the benefit of being in the room. And uh, for those um, listening in, um, the podcast will be live to share with your audiences by Friday at our podcast station, Set the Month in Motion. Thanks very much.